Good morning, this is The Burner. I am James Butler and it is Tuesday, the 26th of May and we're still in lockdown. And I confess a mounting sense of difficulty in reporting what is, of course, the top story across all the papers today, which is Dominic Cummings' bizarre press conference in the number 10 Rose Garden yesterday afternoon, in which Cummings effectively declared that he had broken the lockdown regulations, essentially because he decided it was all right to do so. And this made it all right and definitely not a problem. No legal problem here. Johnson also backed him in yesterday's more standard Downing Street press conference, saying he thought Cummings had behaved both quote, reasonably and legally, and those really are the the two key words there, neither of which actually seem to be true, uh, and gave him his full support. Let's back up here for a moment and just note a couple of things. One is that it is passing bizarre that this press conference happened at all. Special advisers are not generally supposed to speak publicly, let alone hold press conferences. And in general, when they become the story, they're supposed to resign, as with Joe Moore uh, many years ago now, suggesting 9-11 was a good day to bury bad news. We know, of course, that won't happen here, and it's not like Cummings hasn't been in the headlines a lot before. And The only parallel I can think of is Alistair Campbell's gruesome, finger-jabbing interview on Channel 4 over the dodgy dossier, the pretext for the Iraq war. And that was widely seen as the beginning of the end for him. Will this be the same? I wonder. I got an odd sense watching the press conference. Something of the lachrymose and whinging quality of our public life, with Cummings determined to paint himself as an extremely humane and injured a more sinned against than sinning victim of outrageous treatment by the press. This is, of course, a favourite tactic for someone like Cummings uh, to make all problems a problem uh, of the existence of the media uh, and press inquiries, if only the press were so vigorous uh, as Cummings really uh, insists that they are. But he insisted uh, th- on telling us that he regretted nothing. He regretted nothing in great detail. Uh, and there was something odd Uh, Something really odd to the whole thing, like watching an alien who had encountered the concept of honesty but who had had to reconstruct it from the outside in in order to mimic it was not the most convincing impersonation. There was little hint of the interior self-examination which true honesty requires, merely irritated statement and restatement that he believed he had done nothing wrong and he was, of course, careful to keep the boss out of it. Anyone who has ever given a legal or press statement knows the danger of talking too much. One of the dictums of crisis communications, crisis management, is that given a choice, less is more. If you talk too much, you might open up other lines of inquiry or reveal that you're pretty contemptuous of the whole process and you're only bowing to it because of the pressure of public opinion. Now, Dominic Cummings talked a lot and Dominic Cummings is not, though he is many things, an idiot. He certainly opened up all sorts of questions. Who packs their kid into the back of a car and goes on a 60-mile round trip to test their eyesight, for instance, on their wife's birthday? Little sceptical about that story. Or since Cummings' account seems to match the press accounts of his Durham Jolly, why did Number 10 put out statements insisting it was all fake news from campaigning press? He contests almost nothing of their actual accounts. He just thinks he was right to do it. And yet the details that he relied on at great length to justify his breaking the regulations, included a family hospital trip while in Durham. And that is precisely the problem. 
Cummings knows, because he was intimately involved in drawing up the regulations and imposing them on the country, that the point is to prevent exactly that kind of situation. A sick person driving hundreds of miles away from their home to a new location, then attending a public facility where they can shed the virus everywhere, and worse still, if it's a public facility full of people who are already sick or likely immunocompromised. Now, he tries to find loopholes, he tries to interpret and reinterpret the regulations to exonerate himself, and in so doing, implicitly sneers at those who abided by their letter by, say, missing funerals or not visiting sick relatives. The fact remains, he did exactly, exactly what these regulations were intended to avoid. Why? At bottom, basically, because he could. The law is for little people. A couple more things on Cummings, then. Why the morass of detail if it can lead to controversies over what he was actually doing, or if he lied, or over who knew what when? I think there's a degree of squid ink strategy going on here. Empty your ink sacks of every fact available to you, uh, and quibbling over each of them can get everyone lost for days or weeks in the simple big picture story that he thinks and the Prime Minister agrees he's above the law that binds the rest of us. That story just disappears. Much better to deal with a minor quibble over how far you can drive on a full Range Rover tank than whether your arrogance led you to flout regulations and dodge sacrifices made by the rest of your country and risk the health of many of the people in the city to which you were driving. This is not an uncommon technique, essentially flooding or overwhelming a story. It has its analogues well beyond the media too. It's also the cultural reflex of participatory neoliberalism in which you're constantly asked for your opinion or review of this or that small part of the whole, usually a transaction of some kind, and that neatly forestalls any wider conversation uh, about the wider setup. But here it's intended as a great vanishing act, hopeful that public anger will dissipate in the baffles of detail uh, and quibbling over minor facts. We shouldn't let that happen because the story at its root is really very simple. Cummings and the Prime Minister believe they are above the niceties of the law. Does any of this matter? Who really cares if the Prime Minister's Chief of Staff drove to Durham? Of course, it's more than that. More even than just the hypocrisy and the deception and the attempt to shift the blame to the press for reporting on it. And to me it matters because in politics consequences should matter. They do matter. They matter because they tell us our rulers are under the same law that we're under. That is, the compact that we make with them. That we vote for them and in doing so we endow them with the power to make and shape the law. And at the same time, they submit themselves to be bound by that law like any of us. It is why justice is represented blindfolded. She is, or rather should be, no respecter of persons. And this is a basic premise of democratic politics, equality before the law. And without it, the whole edifice begins to fall apart. Why? Because immunity from consequences, both legal and political, is effectively a way of saying, in fact, democratic politics is really all fraudulence and show. If the mechanisms of responsibility and consequence ever did work in democratic life, they really don't now, and your attitude to them should be one of cynicism or nihilism. It's a deeply, deeply demobilising and poisonous message for a political establishment to send, not least because it forgets, or maybe doesn't care, or takes for granted, that democratic politics is actually quite a fragile achievement, and that it's always under threat from oligarchy and other brutalities. That might all be fine for Cummings, of course. It's less often remarked than it should be that Cummings' relationship to democratic politics is basically one of contempt and loathing. 
something that is occasionally obscured by his celebration of the plebiscite on the European Union as a kind of great act of democratic authorization. But for him, that's it. The actual process of democracy, the stuff that follows afterwards, of agonistic conflict and plurality and debate, that's always been an inconvenience. It's why every opportunity he gets, he likes to try to teach the public to view democratic politics as he does, a sort of lying pretext to dress up your own will to power in Sunday best with cynicism and self-enrichment and personal gain, the true and secret motive force. So you feel like a fool ever to have had any hope in even the possibility of a democratic politics at all. It would of course be absurd to imagine that Cummings set up this situation in order to inculcate this message. But his belief that the law is simply something to be disregarded and his intention to suffer no consequences whatsoever, uh, these are powerful teaching aids, even if he happened across them by chance. So here's my view. The details are interesting in a legal sense, but we already know enough. Let's not get lost in them. The story here is a very simple one. The ruling class of this country with their estates and their woods and their staff, they believe they're above the law because they believe they're a breed apart from you and me. They are not, and the law should humble them. Resign. 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 All right. Now for something on one aspect of the coronavirus pandemic you may have seen just momentarily fluke and splash above the media attention line and disappear again under it. But it is important. Here's Gary McQuiggan. For the past two months, I've been locked down in my own home, staring out the window, listening to the birds, and of course, spending hours and hours and hours on the internet. But imagine you spent your lockdown in a room the size of your bathroom, with no window, maybe a window with bars on it, and no phone. That's the reality for tens of thousands of people currently locked down in the UK's prison system. To learn a bit more about what's going on with coronavirus in prisons, I spoke to Una Ryder, a campaigner with the Prison Solidarity Network and host of Navarra Media's podcast, The Lockdown, a podcast about prisons and criminal justice. So, Una, hello. Hi. What's going on? So I'll give you a bit of the backstory to um, what the Ministry of Justice's response has been to coronavirus, because it's been a little bit chaotic, a little bit all over the place. Um, so the end of March, Public Health England recommended that the Ministry of Justice release 15,000 prisoners. Um, and this was to give the space for prisoners to be moved into single cells, because um, a lot of prisoners share cells in order to make social distancing possible. Um, The population back in March was just under 84,000. This is in England and Wales. And there was a lot of concern that coronavirus would spread really, really fast in prisons. Hygiene standards in prisons, cleanliness, um, access to healthcare, all of those things are already really, really poor inside prisons. Um, And it can be hard in some prisons to even get hold of soap. Um, and get access to hot water. So there were a lot of concerns that this would spread like wildfire. Um, Researchers from the University of London predicted that 800 people in prison would die if no measures were put in place. Prison reform charities and prison abolition groups were calling for large numbers of prisoners to be released in order to prevent the spread of the virus. And lots of other countries have been releasing prisoners. In March, on March the 24th, the Ministry of Justice um, suspended all family visits and put prisons on lockdown. So this means that prisoners um, are being held in cells for 22 to 24 hours a day, only let out semi-regularly for showers, for using the phone, for a small amount of exercise in the yard. 
Um, and sometimes all of these things have to be squeezed into a kind of half an hour of the cell per day. So eventually in April, the Ministry of Justice announced that they would be running an early release scheme and they'd be releasing up to 5,000 prisoners. So nowhere near the 15,000 the Public Health England had recommended, but it was something. They then in mid-April accidentally released six of the wrong prisoners. They accidentally released them. Yeah. Uh, So six people were released from prison. The Ministry of Justice suddenly went, "Uh uh-oh, these are the wrong people, and brought them back to prison. They were returned voluntarily. Okay, so they all returned of their own volition. (laughs) We're not sure exactly what the details of this is. I mean, it does happen every now and then. It's admin errors within prisons or within the prison and probation service. So this happened and the Ministry of Justice then paused the program as a result of it. Then in May, they came out and said, no, we're scrapping the program altogether. Um, This was after actually purchasing almost 2,000 electronic monitoring tags from private companies already that will presumably not be used now. So to date, actually only 81 prisoners have been released early as a result of coronavirus. So some of them are um, pregnant women, although there are still pregnant women in prison. Um, Some of them are women with children and others are just um, other prisoners, men who have uh, been released close to the end of their sentence have been released early. The thing that does seem to be working is that the death levels have not been anywhere near what's expected. So the latest numbers are that 21 prisoners have died and seven members of staff have died. Um, At the moment, 432 prisoners 555 prison staff and 24 prisoner escort staff have tested positive. Um, So these aren't nearly as high as the numbers that were expected. Um, Obviously, campaigners are really, really pleased that we haven't seen anywhere near the levels of deaths that we're expecting. Um, But this has essentially been done by putting tens of thousands of people in solitary confinement. Um, And the plan seems to be more or less to keep them in solitary confinement. What you're saying is that by keeping all these people in solitary confinement, it seems, as far as we can tell, that the virus, the spread of the virus in prisons is being contained. But what repercussions are there going to be of putting all those people in solitary confinement for such a long time? And is it, at the moment, is it in an indefinite amount of time? Um, so at the moment, it seems unclear that it's been reported, um, the Ministry of Justice is saying 12 months, there's been nothing confirmed to people in prison. They're kind of receiving lots of mixed messages at the moment. Um, yeah, so it does seem that this has to some extent contained the virus. There's still, obviously, people still have concerns, um, particularly where there are prisons where people are still sharing cells. Um, So there's still lots of concerns that outbreaks could happen um, and that it would be hard to really suppress them once that had happened. Um, But yeah, the ramifications of this level of isolation are just huge. Family visits have been suspended since the 24th of March and there's speculation that these will be suspended for 12 months. In a previous job, I worked on Lord Farmer's review of family ties for men in prison, um, doing some of the research for that. And during that review, we found people would tell us over and over again, the one thing that gives me hope, the one thing that keeps me alive is those family visits, is knowing that I can see my family and knowing that I can phone them. 
Um, so this is huge for people and it's really, really huge for people on the outside as well. The feeling within families, um, partners of prisoners, children of prisoners, um, people are really just tearing their hair out now. They don't know when they're next going to see their loved one. Um, they're not getting any clear information. And many people are saying, I don't, I don't know how long I can do this for. The strain on people's relationships is just absolutely huge. Um, and the mental health issues this is ca causing for people in prison and people outside of prison will have really, really long-term ramifications. There's also the issue that people can't even phone um, as much as they could as well. So in many prisons, access to phones is limited because they're having so little time out of cell. In some prisons, they do have in-cell phones. In some prisons, they've issued mobile, um, mobile phone handsets. Um, but in many, they're still relying on having to use the shared phones on the wing all in a, quite a short amount of time. And surely that, surely using a shared phone in itself is a bit of a risk in terms of containing the virus. Yeah, definitely. And there's, you know, many people inside have felt really worried about that. Some people have even avoided using the phone if they've got underlying health conditions for that reason. And that puts additional pressure on families where they know that their loved ones are having to risk their health in order to have that kind of that five, 10 minute phone call. Um, there's also obviously been a big impact on people's finances. So phone calls within prison are incredibly expensive. They can be up to 20p a minute it's due to um, contract with um, BT who run the phones. Um, so in some prisons, they have um, added extra money to prisoners' spends. Um, in some of the private prisons, they've managed to negotiate reductions in the rate with BT. But for most people, they're just having to spend much more on phone credit. Um, and this puts financial pressure on families and it puts financial pressure on people inside. And of course, many, many people just can't afford it. There are also limits in prisons on based on, on how much you can spend um, based on kind of what level of the behavior scheme that you're at. Um, so it means that some people are really, really limited in the phone contact that they can have with their family. Some people can have more contact, but are paying for that with a big financial hit. Mm, and I assume there's no kind of like a lot of people who aren't in prison have dealt with inability to see their family and friends by getting on Zoom and kind of having, you know, learning how to video chat, et cetera. I imagine there's no, there's nothing like that. Not at the moment. Um, the MOJ has actually um, announced that it's starting to roll out virtual visits. So um one of the big concerns about the things that have been put in place as a result of coronavirus is how they how they will live on through the system after the virus. So I talked before about people being moved into single cells um, in order to prevent the transmission of the virus. That's being done through bringing in shipping containers and bringing in porter cabins. So people will be um, in what is called a single cell, meaning they'll be living in a shipping container. Um, or living in a porter cabin. And the concerns are that these, this extra capacity that's been brought into the system will remain when the virus passes. Similarly, the virtual visits, you know, many family members are really, really desperate to have this virtual visits up and running because they, they need to see their loved one. But there's a lot of concerns about what the long-term ramifications of that will be. In the US, where virtual visits are introduced, a really high um, proportion of prisons that introduce virtual visits then cancelled in-person visits. 
there's a lot of perverse incentives with virtual visits. For prisons, it kind of ticks their security boxes. It's easier for, pe for prisons um, if people just visitors aren't coming in. Um, there's also incentives for private companies to be making a profit through people using their virtual visits app um, rather than having lots of face-to-face -face visits. Um, so although families are really, really keen to be able to see their loved ones over video, there are also a lot of concerns about what that means long-term for whether those in-person visits will be coming back. Yeah, it's the same with like the solitary confinement aspect of it where they can kind of say, hey, look how well this has worked. Why not keep these measures in place? Exactly. And we've seen things like the um, former chief inspector for prisons kind of celebrating um, the success of prisons and containing the virus and saying that... Um, other institutions, other public services could be learning from them. Um, seemingly forgetting that the UN defines solitary confinement as torture. You know, this, this miracle response from this public service to coronavirus is essentially torturing tens of thousands of people. This cannot be a, a humane and sustained response to the situation to have, you know, up to 80,000 people in solitary confinement for a year. So what, what have been some of the, the reactions in kind of like civil society organizations and campaigners? So we saw kind of um, in March and April, we've seen organizations such as the Prison Reform Trust, the Howard League, um, also the Prison Governors Association, um, which is the more surprising one, calling for large numbers of um, releases from prison. We've since kind of seen some retreats there. The Prison Reform Trust and the Howard League were um, initially launching a legal case against the Ministry of Justice. They dropped that with <laughs> for reasons that are unclear to me when the MOJ released some more information um, about their modelling for the numbers of deaths. There are other organisations who um, lean towards a more abolitionist framing. So there's Inquest, which is um, a charity that supports family members of people who have died in state custody. And there's also women in prison who provide um, services for women who've been in the criminal justice system and also campaign on um, issues for women in the criminal justice system. They've launched a joint campaign to um, put pressure on the Ministry of Justice to release large numbers of people to actually ensure that the virus does not spread through the prisons and also ensure that the response to coronavirus doesn't end up violating the human rights of tens of thousands of people. Um, so they have written a letter to Boris Johnson um, requesting that more people are released and that public health is taken seriously. Mm. So if people want to show solidarity with these prisoners who face being locked down for the next year, uh, what kind of things would you suggest? Like how can people practically show solidarity and support? So firstly, I should say that um, a lot of the things that I've been talking about, a lot of the information that I've got has come from um, a social media account called Blue Bag Life. Um, you can follow them on Instagram or on Twitter. So that's Lisa Selby and Elliot Morelski. Elliot was in prison for a little while. Lisa is his partner. Um, and they've been doing an incredible job throughout this crisis of gathering information from people inside, from their families and friends, and really showing the public what those people are going through um so you can follow them to find out more it's really one of the few places that you will directly hear from people who are actually affected by this 
Um, you can also sign the letter by Inquest and Women in Prison. You can find that on um, Inquest's website, inquest.org.uk um, forward slash COVID, COVID-19 letter. Another thing you can do is donate to um, a fundraiser that the Prisoner Solidarity Network are running. Um, we started up this fundraiser in March. Um, and what we're doing is distributing money directly to people in prison to help them pay for phone calls um, and also to help them pay for hygiene items, things like soap, hand sanitizer. Um, all these things are really crucial at the moment. Families are under a lot of economic pressure, really struggling to send money um, into people inside. Um and we've had a huge amount of applications um, for funding from this fund. So we really need every penny we can get to help um, distribute the money to everyone who needs it. Um, another thing you can do is also join a pen pal scheme and start writing to people in prison. That social solidarity um, and that connection with the outside is more important than ever at the moment. Um, so if you want to get involved with that, you can get in touch with the Prisoner Solidarity Network over social media, um, or you could join another scheme um, like Bent Bars. Um, so there's not nearly enough connection between people outside and people inside prisons. So this is a great thing that you can be doing at the moment. Great. Thanks for speaking to me, Una. Thanks for having me. My thanks to Gary and to Una for that. And I think, and I'm I'm not sure, but I think I think that's the first interview that Gary's done for us, despite having been the Eminence Cris of our video section for many years, uh, and effectively director and producer of a vast array uh, of our content. So that's nice. And Una, of course, many of you will know, but if you don't, you can find her podcast called The Lockdown uh, on the Navarra Media website. And if you've never done prison letter writing, you really should. My thanks to both, and more to come, I hope. Uh, but okay, all the headlines this morning are on Big Dom's day out. Uh, there's also a funny little story about his vanity brewing, which is that at the beginning of his press conference yesterday, Cummings highlighted his godlike prescience in predicting a coronavirus pandemic and pointed the press to his blog. Except, of course, the XML sitemap reveals he uh, edited in the specific reference to coronavirus in March this year. Truly, he really is an early 2000s blog crank at heart. Of course, wider warnings of the consequences of a global pandemic have been around a lot longer than Cummings's blog. If we're awarding to places in public life based on pandemic prescience, I look forward to Mike Davis, probably my favourite living Marxist writer, taking charge of the UK government. He did, after all, write the book on it 15 years ago. The split in the right-wing press continues, with most of the billionaire press playing nice with Downing Street, uh, or at least pulling their headline punches a bit. It is the male, though, which usually has its eyes trained strictly on the fluctuating mood of Middle England, and the male has come out on the attack over Cummings this morning. In fact, its front-page headline is virtually identical to that of the Mirror. Is that the first time that's happened? Meanwhile, the Metro splashes with Stay Elite on the front cover, possibly the most damaging headline of all, especially from, uh, especially so from a less nakedly political paper than others. Uh, he must be thankful there are still fewer people commuting this morning. Gove is on the march through the studios to defend Cummings, uh, but it's not just the media that matters now. If you're cursed with a Tory MP, I'm sorry... Uh, but now might be the time to write to them, expressing your fury and your dismay. Ministers are also giving quotes to journalists about their fear over dangerous public health consequences of the coming story. Now, it seems quite likely to me that it will have an impact on how many people are taking lockdown seriously, uh, if at all. Uh, 
it, they also give a quote. One minister also gives a quote to the Times saying, he's saying he's so much more important than us plebs. I think we're in big trouble. We can't campaign our way out of this. We are losing trust and confidence. It's draining away before our eyes. Now, the violin I'd need for that is so tiny, it would be subatomic. Johnson declared yesterday that some shops and other markets are able to reopen under strict conditions from mid-June. More on that and the loosening of the lockdown and the coming battle over schools later this week. But otherwise, that's all. Stay safe, stay home, wash your hands and, well, don't drive hundreds of miles while sick with COVID-19 and whinge about it on TV. Or, in other words, don't be a prick. That's it. This is The Burner. I'll see you tomorrow. A bientôt. This broadcast is brought to you by Novara Media. Go to novaramedia.com slash support.